0: good evening good again to be with you and good uh i want to welcome everyone who's joining us online on the worship uh, guide to you glad you could join us that way but uh glad everyone's here I want to invite you to go ahead and grab your bibles and open up to luke chapter 22 that's uh where many of you read this past week as part of the bible 2020 reading plan and hope you're pressing on with that and that's been encouraging and challenging to you and you say oh i've dropped off a few days or a few weeks. That's okay, just pick right back up uh, this coming week and as we continue through the Gospels uh, and we find our place tonight in Luke chapter 22. Now, here's a reality that I think everyone can completely relate to. As humans, one of our glaring effects or one of the glaring effects of our fallenness is our struggle to remember rightly. We struggle with a good memory. Can anybody say amen and relate to that? Now, we've all seen the effects of it, and it looks like this sometimes. Sometimes it can be an issue of conflict. Now, I could tell you countless times that my wife and I have had distinctly different memories, of an event that took place. Can anybody relate to that? And I see some elbow jabbing, finger pointing going on right now. I know it happened this way. Nope, it happened this way. And probably we're both wrong. We struggle to remember. We've all experienced the awkwardness of the person who shows up coming down the aisle at Walmart that you've gone to church with for 10 years and you just can't remember their name, right? And in that moment, you either choose to go to another aisle in Walmart, or they become, dear brother, how are you this evening, right? We struggle with that. We also realize the frustration, and man, we can all relate to this in our digital age. We all know the frustration is, no, I don't remember the username or the password or where I wrote it down, right? We can all relate to that. By the way, we have a saying in our house, and it goes like this, there are no passwords in heaven. Won't that be a great day where there are no passwords to remember? Well, to turn that a little bit, the Bible calls us and calls our attention to the connection between rightly remembering and our walk and our worship of King Jesus. In other words, the Bible itself throughout calls us as followers of the Lord Jesus to rightly remember. Give me some examples. Exodus chapter 13, Moses says to the people of Israel, Remember this day that you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by the strong hand of the Lord who brought you out from this place... Remember the Lord, remember what the Lord has done. Nehemiah chapter four, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read these to you quickly. But when Nehemiah returns with the exiles, some of the exiles back to Judah, he says this, do not be afraid of them, your enemies, but remember the Lord. He is great, he is awesome, and fight for your brothers. In other words, remember who the Lord is. In the book of Numbers, the Bible calls the children of Israel to literally tie tassels on the corner of their garments. And Numbers chapter 15 says the reason you will do this is it will be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. It's as if the Bible knows in our fallenness, we struggle to rightly remember. Now, often we can remember, but it's just not right. We we struggle in our fallenness with that. Psalm 105 verse 5 says, remember the wondrous works that he has done and his miracles and the judgments that he has uttered. So throughout the Bible, there's this call to remember to the point that it becomes pretty obvious that rightly remembering who God is, what God has done, the truth about him is directly connected to our walk with the Lord and our worship of him. Now take another step. The Bible also unashamedly recognizes the danger of forgetfulness, a spiritual forgetfulness, a forgetfulness of what is true, or a forgetfulness of who God is, or what God has done. Couple examples: Judges chapter eight, and you remember walking through Judges. I mean, Judges is a is a pretty dark period in the season of the nation of Israel. One of the reasons is Judges eight thirty four says, and the people of Israel did not remember. The Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. Wow. One of the reasons of the downward spiral of the people of God in the book of Judges. Is they failed to remember rightly the Lord and who he was and what he had done. True for all of us at times. Psalm 106 verse 13 says speaking of the children of Israel. But they soon forgot his works and they did not wait for his word or his counsel verse 21 of that same chapter psalm 106 says they forgot god Man, what an indictment they forgot god their savior who had done great things for them in egypt wondrous works in the land and the awesome deeds by the red sea they suffered from what you could call spiritual forgetfulness So again, the point is pretty clear here. The Bible makes a big deal about rightly remembering what's true of God, who he is, what he's done, and the danger of forgetfulness when it comes to truth. Now, Luke chapter 22. Now, if you know your Bible, and you've been reading it this week, you know Luke chapter 22, here's the setting. It's the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. It's really, and let's just be honest, it's one of the most important nights in human history. It's the night before Jesus will go to the cross. He's literally, it's the final hours of his life. His public ministry is over in the sense now he has been devoting his time exclusively to his disciples, his 12 men. There's a gathering that the masses have gathered in Jerusalem because it's the festival time. It's the time for Passover in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is doubling in size. And there Jesus, as a good Jew, if you will, has gathered his disciples in an upper room and they've gathered there to celebrate the Passover. Now, his disciples have no idea at this moment it will be the last Passover that they'll ever celebrate like this. And Jesus is going to call his disciples there that night to a practice, we call it the Lord's Supper, and he says, the reason I'm commanding you to do this practice, the Lord's Supper, is so that you will remember. So that you will remember. Because again, consistent with scripture, it is essential and vital to our daily walk with God himself to remember rightly what is true about God and what he has done. In our flesh, we drift quickly. And I do, and you do, to spiritual forgetfulness. So here in this upper room, that's kind of the setting. It's the feast of the Passover, verse Two, and this is not going to be on the screen, you can just follow along to get the context. Verse two, the chief priests, the scribes, the enemies of Jesus were seeking how to put him to death. So Luke paints the backdrop as the disciples gather there in the upper room that the religious leaders are actively at that very moment pursuing how to put Jesus to death. It says that that Satan has already entered into the heart of Judas. He is plotting with the religious leaders at this very moment of how to trap Jesus and catch him there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then how to lead him off to be crucified and all that's going on. And Jesus in verse 14 gathers his disciples there and really you can't even underestimate what a pivotal moment this is in redemptive history that goes on in Luke chapter 22. So we're going we're gonna to begin in verse 14. We'll walk down through, I don't know, around verse 20 or something like that. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to then switch over to 1 Corinthians 11 and get a little bit of an interpretation of all that's going on here from the Apostle Paul. So with all that going on, verse 14 says, And when the hour came, Jesus, he... Reclined at table, and the apostles were with him. Jesus says to them, I want you to see this. Verse 15, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Stop right there. If you write in your Bible and you do word studies, you better underline that little word earnestly because it's a very strong word in the original language. It is Jesus saying, I have longed for, waited with great anticipation for tonight. And I've looked forward to this night. I have earnestly desired to celebrate this Passover with you tonight before I suffer tomorrow. Again, remember, in the mind of the disciples, they don't really have a complete, full understanding of what he even means when he says suffer. He's been talking about it for over a year now as he's been walking with them that the Son of Man is gonna have to suffer. And they, they've continued to struggle with that idea. What do you mean, Jesus? You're here to establish the kingdom and beat the Romans, right? What are you talking about? He says, no, I'm gonna suffer. I'm gonna die. I've, I've longed for this night to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. Verse 16, for I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Talk more about that in a minute. And he took a cup, and that's nothing unusual. The Passover meal involved four cups and bread and some spices and bitter herbs. And it was this feast of unleavened bread and this Passover meal. So he takes a cup, and when he would given thanks, he said, take this divide it among yourselves for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine till the kingdom of God come in other words something's different about the Passover tonight Jesus is saying it's different now he says there in verse 15 I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover What's gonna happen tonight is just a few minutes, we're gonna celebrate, those of us who have gathered here, we're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Here's my prayer today and my prayer leading into tonight is this for us. We wanna take the Lord's Supper, we wanna prepare our hearts, but I'm praying for me and for you that we will have a thoroughly scriptural, fresh, heart-shaping view of the Lord's Supper before we celebrate it together in just a few minutes. I want you to see that Jesus makes a big deal about what we're getting ready to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Why? Let's see. He says, verse 15, he says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You don't really understand the Lord's Supper if you don't understand a little bit about the Passover. Briefly, the Passover meal that they're gathered there to celebrate, they Celebrating that meal with practically every Orthodox Jew at that time. The Jews for 1400 years up to this point have celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. Up to this point in redemptive history, if you wanted a vivid picture of the reality that God is Savior, then the people of Israel would always look back to the Exodus When God led his people out of slavery and set them free by an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. You know, reading throughout the Old Testament, how many times you saw that? Look back, celebrate, don't forget, remember the exodus when God demonstrated he is savior and deliverer and he led you out of Egypt. 1,400 years, the children of Israel. God said, it's so important that you don't forget the exodus. Every year. You're gonna gather with your family. You're gonna gather with other Jewish followers of Yahweh. And you're gonna celebrate this meal so that you will not forget that God is deliverer. He has led you out of Egypt. And that was a physical deliverance, not even a spiritual deliverance. It's the Passover. You remember that God there in Egypt, they were in bondage. They'd been there for 400 years. The children of Israel, God sends Moses, right? in to deliver the children of Israel. Moses goes to Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, and says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, who is, who is this Lord and why should I let your people go? You know the story. God unleashes 10, a series of 10 plagues on Egypt as judgment on Egypt and Egypt, the Egyptian gods. The 10th plague was the death of the firstborn that every firstborn in the land of Egypt would die that night as the death angel passed through the land, except for any home that took the blood from a lamb that had been slain, an unblemished, spotless lamb. You take the blood, you paint it over the doorpost of your home. And what does the death angel do when he sees the blood? He passes over that home. That's the Passover, 1,400 years. They'd celebrated that. It's a picture. It's a picture that judgment is just, but judgment is averted by the blood of a lamb. And Exodus 12, verse 13 and 14, just just again, just to help you understand and remind you of the seriousness of the Passover meal. Exodus 12, verses 13 and 14 says this. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. Now we're going back in time, 1,400 years. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a memorial, a memory, something to remember And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever, and you shall keep it as a feast. So for the last 1,400 years, with some gaps, we know in history, but they've celebrated this feast of the Passover. Jesus now gathers his disciples in that upper room, and he transitions the Passover into the Lord's Supper. It ch- changes the meaning and the significance of this Passover meal that's been,'s been celebrated for 1400 years. He transforms the meaning. You see that in verse 19. So he says, he took the bread, Jesus, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, evidently gave each person a portion, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this now in remembrance of me. In other words, he transitions and transforms this bread that had always been part of the Passover meal, and the meaning was to look back to the Exodus in Egypt as a picture, a vivid picture of God's salvation. Jesus says, Now I'm going to fulfill that picture. I'm going to transform that meaning. And he says, now you will look back at this Lord's Supper, it is now called, and this bread, here's what you're to do. It now represents my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, pause right there. I don't want to dig down too much and chase a rabbit too much. But when Jesus says, this is my body, what in the world does he mean? That sounds weird. There are some who want to say that Jesus is saying that this bread that he holds in his hand literally becomes the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Catholic view that's been taught for hundreds of years. That's not what Jesus teaches here at all. The Hebrew understanding, when he uses the word "body, clearly was communicating he is meaning all of himself. The, the idea in the Hebrew when you hear someone refer to the body, it's the idea of all that I am, who I am. So when we take that bread, it is to we are to call back to mind. All who Jesus is, that God has come among us. God has delivered us by his blood, and we are to call back to memory who Jesus Christ is in all his glory. To say this is my body was clear, clearly metaphorical. There, there's, Jesus does this throughout the gospels. He says, I'm a door, I'm the light. He says, I'm a door, that doesn't mean he's wood and you know, handles and screws, it's a metaphorical picture. That's the point here. And he couldn't literally be saying that this bread literally becomes his body because he's still physically present with him. He's literally there in presence and says, this is my body. There's no, the bread could not become his body. He's physically there with him. It is symbolic and it is a picture of who Jesus is and all that Jesus accomplishes for us. And he's saying to his disciples, This bread is to remind you throughout generations that God has come among you and God has given himself for you and all the significance of the deliverance of God. When you think back now to the most vivid picture of God's redemption in history, it's not the exodus anymore. It's going to be the cross. And that's now true for us believers when we take that bread we're to think back and call to mind in worshipful remembrance who our lord is and all that he has done and to recall what is true about him verse 20 and likewise the cup after they had eaten saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant which is in my blood in other words he takes one of the for Passover cups and transforms that into a picture of his blood and the price that is to be paid for our redemption in the new covenant. So I just want you to see this here that this is highly significant. Jesus transitions the Passover, transforms it now into the Lord's Supper. Second thing he does here is Jesus commands his disciples to practice this throughout generations. Verse 19, he says clearly, Do this. In remembrance of me. You know what the Lord's will is? It's that we practice the Lord's Supper on a regular basis in remembrance of him. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a big truth. And then I'm going to give you some big ideas that flow out of that. And this is very simple. Here's the big truth tonight out of this passage is this. Jesus commands his disciples to practice the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him. The reason we do this as a church is very simply because Jesus commanded us to do it. And and the reason we do it is to remember him, who he is and what he has done. And for the last 2000 years, that's been the practice of God's people of the church. Book of Acts, I want to ask you to turn there, but Acts chapter two, one of the first things the early church did was they practiced the Lord's supper. They broke the bread together in fellowship with one another Looking to, this, looking to this command Jesus gives us to practice this thing called the Lord's Supper. Now, what I want us to do in our remaining minutes, I want us to get a thorough understanding of even more so what Jesus means by this. And the way we're gonna do that is we're gonna look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So go ahead and flip over there. Find your place right around verse 17. Now, first corinthians 11 is a letter written by the apostle paul to a group of believers there at the church of corinth and if you know anything about the church of corinth in this letter you know the church at corinth had problems they were really a messed up church they had some serious issues you say you think man our church has issues read corinth and you'll feel really great they had some major problems I mean, they had deep divisions. They were suing one another. They were breaking off into their social groups. They were having this superiority sense over one another. The, the rich were haughty, and uh, they were elitist against the poor. It was just this, they, they were very immature, it says in 1 Corinthians 2. They were selfish. They were thinking only of themselves. Spiritual gifts were just as a way to puff themselves up so people would look at them rather than serving one another. Anyway, it was a messed up church. Gross sexual immorality was going on there, Paul says, in chapter 3 and 4. And when you get to chapter 11, here's what Paul is writing about. He says, okay, all of these selfish, immature divisions that you're having, when you guys come together for the Lord's Supper, it's not even the Lord's Supper. He says, your heart is so selfish when you come together and you've made it so much about you and you're so divisive. He says, what you're practicing is not even the Lord's Supper at all. So don't even call it that basically. So he uses this really negative situation in Corinth, watch this, and the Bible does this a lot, to drop the beautiful diamond of what the Lord's Supper is to be right in the middle of it to give us a clear, thorough understanding of what the Lord's Supper is to be, this incredible gift that God has given us in the Lord's Supper. So look at verse 17. I'm gonna read a few verses really quick and then we'll celebrate together. So they'd really botched the Lord's Supper, if you will. Verse 17, he says, but... In the following instructions, Paul says, I do not commend you. How'd you like to receive that letter from Paul? I don't commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, Paul is saying it would be better for you not together as a church. Because of the attitude and your heart in which you're coming together. And around this meal called the agape feast and then the Lord's Supper that they kind of lumped together in this period of time. He says, verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. It says it may not be as bad as what I'm hearing, but I believe there are divisions because I know you. And I know your tendency toward immaturity and I know your tendency toward selfishness. Verse 20, he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Wow. Evidently, it was a practice of the early church. Every time they came together, it seems that they practiced the Lord's Supper. So he says, listen, when you come together, you go through the motions, but it's not the Lord's Supper. Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? What? Verse 22, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Why are you making the Lord's Supper this selfish, gluttonous feast in which it's becoming evident that you do not consider your brother as more important than yourself? You've made it all about you. Now here's the quick takeaway for us on that. Let me read the rest of it really quick. He says, what, do you not have houses to eat in? Do you you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? There were these social classes and they were looking down on one another. The church that is to be a level ground where your color or your skin color or your background or your socioeconomic strata should not matter. It's all level at the cross. They were coming in with these elitist groups and divisions among themselves. He says, shall I commend you in this? He says, no, I will not. Here's the point. Seems for us, as we go into the Lord's Supper, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is a time that it's going to, the the attitude with which we bring to the Lord's Supper will often reveal the current condition of our heart. Wow. Paul said, the way you're celebrating the Lord's Supper, don't even call it the Lord's Supper, He says, it's revealing all that's in your heart toward God, toward one another, toward the world around you. Man, it's this. He says, don't even call it the Lord's Supper. What an indictment. Keep reading. This practice that was instituted to remember the selfless sacrifice of Christ had now become an expression of their own selfishness the practice that was instituted to demonstrate communion with Jesus and communion with one another they had now turned it into an expression of division and he says you are not rightly remembering nor representing the person and the work of Jesus Christ when you come to the Lord's table and here's a takeaway another takeaway for us this was such a serious issue in the church at Corinth and for us paul says verse 30 that is why many of you are weak Some of you are ill and some of you have died. Wow. In other words, the Lord's Supper is such a significant part of our walk with the Lord Jesus when we approach it in a manner of selfishness and sin. We don't approach it in a manner of understanding that it represents Christ himself and his body and all that it's supposed to be. Paul says some of you in the church of Corinth he dead, meaning God has lovingly corrected and disciplined his people. So then Paul goes from there in this really dark scene in Corinth, and he goes to verse 23, and he says, okay, but let me just remind you now what the Lord's Supper is about. And this jewel of the beautiful Lord's Supper is dropped right down in the middle of all this junk that's going on in Corinth. So look at verse 23. It says this, For I, and out of this, I'm gonna give you three quick, Uh, big ideas and then we'll celebrate together. So verse 23, Paul says, here's why I'm saying all this. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So obviously under the inspiration of the spirit of God, Paul is taking what he's either received from one of the the apostles. Maybe Peter told him this directly. We're not sure. Maybe God just made this known to him. This is a direct revelation. He's saying, this is what Jesus said that night. Verse 25, and in the same way, he also took the cup. And after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Stop right there. So out of this, I just want to give you three big ideas that flow out of this, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Big idea number one is this. At the Lord's table, we remember and we rejoice. At the Lord's table, table, the Lord's Supper, it's intended for us to remember and to rejoice. Paul quotes Jesus here and says, do this in remembrance of me. The word remember here is a strong word that means to call back into memory a vivid memory of something it is to the it is to call us to the mental exercise of remembering rightly what is true of the lord jesus christ what what has been accomplished fully by the lord jesus christ man we are to come to the lord's table and it is to push against our walk in the flesh where somehow we are trusting in our own efforts rather than the finished work of jesus It's a glorious part of our walk with the Lord. We're to come to the Lord's table and we're to be reminded of who this is that gave his life for us. The God-man himself, the creator of all that is, stepped into our existence, took on flesh, and gave himself for us. We are to remember and we are to rejoice. We are to take this bread Jesus gives us so much insight into why it's bread, obviously from the Passover meal, but we read it last week. Don't forget, John chapter 6, Jesus gives this metaphorical significance to bread, and he says this. I'll just read it to you. John 6, verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks on my blood, abides in me, and I in him.'" This bread is to be a picture of who Christ is and in faith and total faith in all that he is, all that he's accomplished. And we are to be reminded that it's Jesus alone that satisfies, Jesus alone that saves, and Jesus alone that sustains and secures us. Man, when we come to the Lord's Supper, think about about how good God is to give us a regular practice as the people of God that we're to come and be challenged in our heart. Where has my heart began to drift to anything less than you to sustain me in a way that only you can? God is so good to give us a regular practice that we come and we take that bread and we're to remember, no, it's you that satisfies. It's you that sustains It's you that saves. I can't trust in my flesh. I can't trust in my own efforts. I can't trust in whether I accomplished this this week or I failed here or I'm I'm trusting in my own righteousness or I'm trusting my own good. No, Jesus is the bread of life and the only one who saves sustains and satisfies. And God loves his people so much and it's a part of our sanctification that we are to practice this on a regular basis that we come and take that bread and remember Jesus alone is the bread of life. Glorious. So we're to come in that manner. Bible teaches clearly that those who take the Lord's Supper are believers, it is for believers. Lord's Supper is not for those who haven't taken of the bread of Christ and eaten it in a spiritual sense. In other words, place faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. First step for a person is not the Lord's Supper. It is faith in Christ and the Lord's Supper then is a demonstration, an ongoing demonstration to the one in whom we have placed that faith, Christ alone. Lord's Supper, as we say, almost every time we take it, is not for unbelieving children. Lord's Supper does provide every parent an opportunity, and man, my wife is so good at this. When I've appeared, maybe teach it through the Lord's Supper. Every time we take it, our two. Youngest daughters have not come to Christ yet. They don't take the Lord's Supper, but every time there's a conversation that goes on of what this means and why you're not ready, and it turns into a gospel conversation. It's an opportunity for parents to have those kind of conversations with children who've not yet believed. Quickly, Paul goes on, verse 27. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner, I think that word has caused some stumbling in the past because we hear that word and we immediately go, okay, I've got to make myself worthy. There's nothing you can ever do to make yourself worthy. The word worthy means equivalent. In other words, when you come to the Lord's table as a believer is my life, my attitude, my action, my obedience, equivalent to the glory of the gospel and who Christ is and what he's done. So we come to to the table in that manner. If we come in an unworthy manner, we'll be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Big idea number two is this. At the Lord's table, we examine and we repent. Repent. Regular practice of the Lord's people is to come to the Lord's table and have this spirit of God examine my heart, examine my relationship here, examine my relationship with other believers. Is there sin I'm toying with? How am I not living in a manner equivalent to the gospel that I say I believe that's transformed my life? Example, quickly. As so we come to the Lord's table and we remember the forgiveness that we have received in Christ, we should be asking, am I extending that same forgiveness to others? Or am I holding on to bitterness? Am I holding on to offenses? In the same way as we remember the union with Jesus is the same as we have with one another am i diligently seeking to preserve the unity of the body and the bond of peace or am i pulling away from the body of Christ am i am i seeking to tear down any divisions that's going on in the body of Christ or am i am i fighting for that unity that's what the gospel calls us to do. So am I living in a manner worthy or equivalent of the gospel? Not that I can ever make myself worthy to earn it. That's not the point. But I am to be reminded of the greatness and the glory of this gospel message that's to transform every area of my life. And we are reminded of that every time we come and take the Lord's table. As I behold the selfless laying down of the life of Christ that this represents, I'm to ask, am I laying down my life for my brothers and sisters in Christ, for my wife, my husband, my children, or have I become so selfish that it's completely contradictory to the gospel which the Lord's Supper represents? As the God-man humbled himself Am I treating others as more important than myself? So see, the one another impact of the Lord's Supper. That's why the question often asked, how do we take the Lord's Supper? And Paul alludes to this, and I'll just share this quickly and then we'll wrap it up. But how am I to take the Lord's Supper? Well, in verse 17 here, he says, when you come together. Verse 18 says, when you come together. Verse 20 says, when you come together. In other words, throughout the New Testament, it's the conviction of our elders here and of myself that the Bible calls us this. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance given to the gathered church. The Lord's Supper is not something I run off and do it by myself at the quarter somewhere. It's not this Lone Ranger Christian practice that we do. It is an ordinance given to the gathered church to practice together. When you come together, when you come together, when you come together. That's one of the reasons, by the way, for us at a conviction level, we continue to pursue the gathering. Because there are some things that are given to us that are to be practiced in the gathering as we physically gather together as the expression of the body of Christ. Then finally, verse 26, and we'll wrap it up. I'm going to invite the team to come on up, and we're going to transition into you preparing yourselves as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Verse 26, finally, in this, he says. Or as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup. I was literally asked this question today. Pastor Mike, how often should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Well, a lot. <laughs> but the Bible nowhere prescribes how often you should do it. Over and over, twice even in this passage, it says, as often as you shall do it. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, here's what happens. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Third big idea is this. At the Lord's table, we proclaim and we anticipate. We proclaim and we anticipate. Paul says when you take this bread and you take this cup, it is a vivid, symbolic representation of the message of the gospel. That the Son of God took on flesh, dwelt among us, and gave himself for the sins of the world to redeem those who would believe. This blood is what has been spilt. The only way sins can be forgiven is by the spilling of the blood of the Lamb of God. We proclaim that. It's to be a picture of that. He says, also, as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What does that mean? What that seems to mean is it's tied into other verses, is that there will be a day that we don't celebrate the Lord's table like we do now. Seems to indicate there is a day coming, just like the Passover was transformed into the Lord's Supper the book of Revelation indicates to us that the Lord's Supper in Revelation 19.9 one day is going to be transformed into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the glory of the communion that we pursue now will have perfect communion with Him forever and ever. And watch this, without sin, without failing, without weaknesses, with all this that keeps us, our faith will become sight. And we will know forever and ever and ever that Jesus is the one who satisfies. Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the one who secures. And we will have perfect communion with him forever and ever. But until then, we by faith celebrate the Lord's Supper. Looking to the day, we'll celebrate the marriage supper. Here's what we're going to do. Those that have gathered here, I'm going to say a word of prayer for us. Move us into a time of preparation and response and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Father, I thank you for this time tonight. God, I pray that we see the Lord's Supper as you intend us to see it. God, I pray we see it as an incredible gift you've entrusted for our sanctification our growth and for our good and for the good of this body and the good of your people and the proclamation of the gospel, Lord, so that we will remember that our hearts will be anchored to you and the gospel. And God, you've given us a regular practice as your people so we will not ever drift far from the gospel. You are so good. Prepare our hearts now. In Jesus' name.